What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm Head of Programming, Connor Boyle. For this episode, we're joined by Hannah Dawson to discuss her anthology, The Penguin Book of Feminist Writing. Hannah is Senior Lecturer in the History of Ideas at King's College London, and her collection spans from writers such as Christine de Pizan in the 15th century to more familiar feminist voices from history, such as Mary Wollstonecraft, while also highlighting the work of perhaps lesser-known figures such as 19th century women's rights activist Ki Jin. Speaking to Hannah Dawson today is the literary critic and author Merva Emre. Let's join Merva now with more. I'm so, so delighted to be chairing this Intelligence Squared event with Hannah Dawson. She is a regular contributor to television, radio, and festivals such as TEDx. She has published in the mainstream press, including the PLS, Prospect, and the Literary Review, and is the author of several books on Hobbes and Locke. But we are here today to talk about her new book, The Penguin Book of Feminist Writing. Congratulations, Hannah. It's really a wonderful, wonderful accomplishment, and it's been a joy to dip in and out of it. We are going to speak for about 45 minutes, and then I am going to be taking your questions. I'm sure I do not have to remind anyone in this audience to keep their questions polite and appropriate, but I will do so anyway for both of our sakes. And without further ado, let us launch this Intelligence Squared conversation with Hannah Dawson. And so, Hannah, when I received your book, I realized that I had a, an entire bookshelf in my library dedicated to anthologies of writing by women and anthologies that often broke down along more specific identity categories or sub-identity categories. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what motivated you to put together a book of feminist writing, not women's writing and not feminist theory, but feminist writing. <laughs> it's a great question. And hi, everyone. And thank you so much, Merve, for doing this. It's a real pleasure to talk with you. Um, yeah, so it's sort of obvious, but obviously women's writing is not the same as feminist writing. These are two distinct concepts. And, um, 
you know, feminism is, is a political project. It's a political position. Anyone can be a feminist. Men can be feminists and women don't have to be feminists. So it's a distinct position. It's a political position. And so what what joins all of the figures in this anthology are their commitment in one way or another to what I see as a feminist position. And feminism I see as a kind of it's a negative project in a way. That's to say, it doesn't have a positive program. It's not saying, you know, all women are great, all men are awful. This is how we have to live. It's simply identifying a pattern of oppression in the world and saying that exists and I want to fight against it. So so all the, the writing in this um, work somehow feed into or tap into that political insight, that sense of dissatisfaction with the patriarchal status quo. And in terms of the question of, of kind of writing or theory, I very much wanted it to be writing and not just theory. And so, as you'll know from, from the contents, it ranges far beyond, you know, manifestos and um, essays, non-fiction essays about setting up particular feminist positions. It encompasses novels, poetry. And in part, that's because I wanted us to rethink political writing. I wanted us to think about um, political writing beyond the genre of political philosophy. Um, but I also wanted it to be a pleasure a pleasure to read, which is why I put so much stuff in there that I think is is gorgeous to read, as well as instructive and enlightening. No, that's that's a wonderful answer. And I was, you know, thinking, or the the book that I pulled off of my shelf to read alongside it is one that some members of our audience might know. And Hannah, I'm sure you know, which is the anthology of feminist manifestos that Verso published about two years ago. And as I was looking at both of them side by side, I was thinking about how an anthology often has two uh, functions that can exist in tension with one another. On the one hand, the anthology is supposed to select. It's supposed to give you the works that are most representative of that political project or of a particular genre like the manifesto. But an anthology is also supposed to create a sense of totality, of giving you something entire and whole about the political project. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about how you thought about balancing uh, selection and totality, and if there were any particular principles of inclusion or exclusion that you thought about as you were putting the anthology together. Yeah, thanks, Mave. Um, that is a great anthology, that Verso anthology. It's an amazing uh, account of the political project, um, very kind of explicitly... Um, it's, it's very explicitly about the politics, whereas exactly as you suggest, um, mine is sometimes comes at the political project obliquely. Um, so my principles of inclusion and exclusion, well, they were multiple. I guess the kind of core one um, is that this was a kind of, it was a sort of fantastically politically correct tick boxing exercise. And I say that as a massive fan of tick boxing exercise. That's to say, I knew, I'm a historian of Western political ideas. That's my training. That's where I come from. I wrote books on Hobbes and Locke, as you said. I know that I have massive blind spots in my understanding of the history of feminism. And so I kind of got out a map, a map of the world. And I thought, right, I don't know 
you know, what came from India. Um, and I and I looked in every place and I made sure that I had something from every place. And of course, that process of that sort of, you know, that process that can sound kind of um, sterile, that tick boxing exercise, that actually is this incredible portal into oceans of amazing literature that you had no idea, ex that I had no idea existed. Um, and so when I started to look, when I got out my map, you know, what I found was that, um, that the history of feminism is a global history um, and that it stretches far back down the centuries, far back in time, you know, before the 19th century, when often people think of the first wave of feminism as beginning. So in part, yeah, my interest was to make it as expansive, as global, as intersectional, as encompassing as possible. Um, but I've also, as I've said, I wanted it to be pleasurable. So I wanted there to be a kind of a kind of rhythm, you know, that it wasn't just kind of one gunshot after another, as it were. Um, was there was there anything that you a particular discovery that you remember and on the flip side of that, was there anything yeah. that it really hurt you not to include? Because you wanted to. Oh, my to. God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, the, the kind of further away in time I get from that process of selection, you know, almost with every book I read, um, I think, oh, God, you know, I love this. So I've just finished um, Lucille Clifton's memoir, um, Generations and... Um, I mean, her stuff is incredible. And she has that amazing poem, which is about, can we just celebrate my survival? You know, I'm a black, I'm black and I, I'm a non-white person and I'm a woman and, and I didn't, and I survived. There's this, you know, so that's an example. That's just an example of, you know, another thing this week that I read. I mean, you know, it's very, it's sort of a complicated thing in the sense that it's a penguin, the imprint is penguin classics. So for example, you know, someone who, um, some people have criticised me for including, uh, I included Jermaine Greer, I included an extract from The Female Eunuch, and, um, you know, Jermaine Greer's taken a, a particular path in relation to trans politics of late, which I don't agree with. Um, um, but The Female Eunuch feels to me, reads to me, and is, as it were, objectively a classic of its time. Um, and... And so I wanted to put that in, but I didn't, for example, put in Ayn Rand. <laughs> you know, I drew the line somewhere. But so, so there was also, the, I mean, I was also, as it were, you know, exercising my kind of political normative judgment in terms of who to include and who to exclude. It's interesting. I mean, you are by training a historian. And so one of the things that I hear you saying is that you have to bring a certain kind of historical intelligence to making these these decisions. It can't simply that the present, the politics of the present cannot be the horizon against or the only horizon against which we yes. against which we measure. So talk to me a little bit about how you thought about balancing what feminism meant historically at all of these very different moments and really some moments where the language of feminism wasn't even extant. I and and, and how you thought about taking like present day understandings of feminism and reading them back into the archive. Yes, that is such a good question. I mean, exactly as you say, I mean, I'm a historian. I am trained in contextualization. I am allergic to um, anachronism, you know, so so it's a weird thing, as it were, for me to think with a 
19th century concept of feminism and retrojected into the past. And, and what I hope becomes clear in reading the anthology is exactly the incredible, diverse plurality and indeed contradictions between many of these feminist texts. So, you know, I begin the anthology with the early 15th century uh, kind of feminist utopia, The City of Ladies by Christine de Pizan. And the only women who are going in Christine de Pizan's City of Ladies are virtuous women. So there's an a deep emphasis running through early modern feminism, um, that that uh, which is all about proving the virtue of women. And of course, if you line that up with kind of liberation uh, feminism of the of the mid twentieth century, if you think about um, Kathleen Hanna from Bikini uh, Kill, who wrote Slut on her body, uh, that's a different kind of that's a different kind of feminism, obviously. So I think it's really important to think to understand that kind of alterity and that diversity. And I think that comes out very kind of clearly through the different pieces. But I also do think, and this is kind of, you know, this is why I'm happy to have the early modern stuff alongside the modern stuff. I do think that insofar as what feminism as an impulse, as an insight picks out is fundamental injustice in the world. Um, that's to say it picks out a reality so it picks out in early modernity, you know, the reality of the fact that um, a man was legally allowed to beat his wife within reason if she did not obey his will. It picks out the fact that historically there was no such thing as marital rape because you were thought to have consented to sex when you, you know, signed your marriage contract. Um, and so, so there's a historical reality there that feminism is a response to. And all of the writers, as I say, are, are tapping into that insight. And that is the common note, you know. And so I stand by the, um, I stand by the use of the concept feminism, even though they didn't have the word, to think through those early modern texts. Mm. I mean, one example, or, or, or do you want to? No, 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 keep going. And then I have a, I, okay. I have a, what you said prompted, prompted another question. Keep going, keep going. Yes. Well, I was just thinking about, I, I mean, something that, um, that I didn't know fully about until I just read all the, possi you know, the possible candidates for inclusion in this anthology was the amazing recurrent um, cry in the history of feminism for education. So, you know, women have, girls and women have been excluded from education historically all over the place. And obviously it's going on in various places now and in various ways now. And, um, you know, so when Judith Sargent Murray at the end of the um, 18th century says, you know, how can you expect me to have an expansive mind, a cultivated mind, if you're not going to give me the tools to grow it, if you're not going to educate me, how can you expect me to see the stars if you're not gonna give me a telescope? And then you see Sarojini Naidu at the um, beginning of the 20th century arguing for the passionately for the education of women, saying that education's like air, we need it to breathe. And then you read Angela Davis in Women, Race and Class talking about how um, enslaved women were desperate and for literacy and, and did a lot of things around the edge to, to, to educate themselves. It's amazing, that note. Well, I was, I was actually thinking about this a little bit in the early modern context, in part because I've 
written on some of those early modern women's pamphlets, like, you know, the, the first, the first one that appears in your book is, is by Jane Anger. Yes. And, and one of the interesting things I was thinking about as I was, as I was reading through your anthology was that Jane Anger was a, a pseudonym. Yeah. And there's still actually debates about whether Jane Anger was a woman or not. And I'm curious how that category, the category of woman or women, overlaps here with the category of feminist, in part because you have a number of authors in here who would seem to me at least to be devoted to projects that are more generally anti-normative or non-normative. And there's an interesting tension there between anti-normative projects and projects that would insist on the category of woman as a class that is linked up with a feminist politics. So how do you, how do you think about that really from the early modern period onward? Yes. So are you thinking in part of women who actually explicitly distance themselves in a sense from the feminist project? I think that's part of it. I mean, you know, Wolf, Virginia yeah. Woolf is in yes. here and she yes. certainly yes. has those inclinations. I mean, she's also a great supporter of feminist presses and feminist authors, but you know, she has a certain reluctance. Or I'm thinking about I'm thinking about someone like, you know, Sontag who Mm. writes in language that is very recognizably feminist to us today, but would have described, did describe feminism as a capital moral truth. And like all capital moral truths, it's a little bit simple-minded. So, yeah. so how do yeah. we kind of reconcile projects of yeah. just general anti-normativity or, yeah. or, or maybe more simply an, an allergy to dogma or doctrine with yes, with what feminism demands. Yes, that is a great question. Um, so I think I have, I think I have two things to say. One is that, as it were, regardless of the self-identification or otherwise of Wolf or Sontag, it seems to me that both of them articulate distinctive, kind of frankly iconic, you know expressions of feminism. I mean, when, you know, when Sontag, I mean, those bits I put in from Sontag from her diaries, you know, when she's talking about those couples, the world is made of couples, married couples, the world's full of couples hunting in their coupledom in their little houses with their little private interests. Um, and that she says something, you know, it's repulsive to me. And I feel like, you know, as well as her critique of Hedda Gabler or whatever, you know, that there's, there's such an amazing kind of feminist, you know, anti um, sort of heteropatriarchal um, insight that I loved it. Um, and, you know, Virginia Woolf, I mean, you know, talking about the, just at the beginning of A Room of One's Own, talking about um, that the generation of the creative process, you know, as she's walking across the grass in an Oxbridge college and the little fish coming out, which sort of signals the beginning of, of kind of, uh, of, of high-end thought. And then the guy tells her to get off the grass and the fish darts back behind the reeds. You know, both those moments are kind of, I mean, they're just, they are to me um, sort of transformative moments in the his, in in the sort of history of, of of kind of feminist understanding and I was going to put them in but you're completely right that they're deeply ambivalent about the project and I think actually that in a way that's also an integral part of feminist thinking it seems to me that feminists should be ambivalent about the project I mean the history of feminism is a deeply problematic history it is just as much a history of the struggle against 
uh, you know, between women, as it is a, of the struggle against patriarchy. Um, you know, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton um, was arguing for the for um, the inclusion of white women in the American polity, she said she wanted white. She said in very racist terms she wanted white women to have the vote before black, black men. men yeah. You know, in the second wave when Betty Friedan, um, you know, was writing about how women. Um, want more. They've got these perfect lives with their picket fences and their two children and their husbands that they want more. Um, Bell Hook says, um, you know, what, a, what about the women who are cleaning their houses and looking after their children and working really hard in their, in, in their kitchens? So, so the history of feminism is a kind of grim history. And that was actually one of the great kind of difficulties of reading all the stuff was just how much how much kind of horror there is within the feminist canon itself. So I think so I think it's good to be ambivalent. I think if you're not ambivalent, then you're doing feminism wrong. I mean, sometimes I can't, sometimes I want no part of it, frankly. I've had enough. Well, t tell me a little bit more about those moments when you've had enough, because I think you probably, <laughs> like like me, believe that there is both an inherent value to historical knowledge, but there is also a, a strategic value to historical knowledge, which is that it is very difficult to understand the present without understanding how it has been shaped by the past, and that both the past and the present are necessary to understand any kind of political strategy going forward. Yeah. So tell me about the moments when you feel fed up and when you want nothing to do with it and how you think that perhaps history can bring us back to the project of feminism in the present with a kind of renewed tolerance perhaps for those for those ambiguities or, or even for the the horrors that you described. Yeah I mean um I mean, there's there's a lot of really interesting questions there. I mean, maybe uh, to pick up um, first on on the kind of role of of history in helping us think through the present. Um, I mean, obviously, something that is remarkable um, about the anthology, and that was remarkable for me in reading it, was just the relentlessness. Um, the relentlessness of the struggle, um, you know, the fact that women, that woman after woman, that writer after writer would, as it were, tell the truth, demonstrate the truth, show the equality of her mind with that of men or whatever it was that she was trying to do, demonstrate the extraordinary violence that was perpetrated against women. Um, and yet... There's this incredible, um, I mean, this is where the kind of wave metaphor feels like it's sort of, it's kind of relevant. It's like the waves of patriarchy. You just can't, they just keep coming. Right, right, right. Um, and, and, so, and so there's a kind of question about, you know, how patriarchy works and, and the importance of memory, the importance of memorialization in terms of, as it were, holding ourselves to account, but also... 
the, the kind of impulse of forgetting as well. I mean, I feel like I was teaching Nietzsche, you know, who has in his genealogy of morals, he talks about the kind of amazing power, the importance of forgetting and how, you know, these those weak people who make promises and, and rake over the past and hold themselves accountable for what they've said in the past, that that's weak, that what we have to do is we have to forget. And it feels to me like, you know, the for, forgetfulness or amnesia, these are kind of mechanisms of power Um you know, you forget empire, you forget, uh, you forget the past, you say move on, you know, it's been a quite a kind of, um, it's quite a current trope, I feel it in the UK, or it was, Boris Johnson kept on telling us to move on. Um, and, and so that resistance to amnesia, to, to understand amnesia and erasure as a political uh, device, and to kind of to call that out and to keep on um, telling the story, telling the story about the past. I think that's important. But on the other hand, there's a great difficulty with continually pointing out the past because in a way what it does is it, you know, it means that in a way you might become reduced to your prob to, to your status as a victim or to, to the problem that you're keeping on trying to point out. And you also want to transcend that. You want to, as Deborah Levy says, you know, you want to just get on with becoming the kind of, the main character in your life. Mm. So so I'm torn between the I'm torn between the process of as it were remembering and forgetting mm -hmm. because I also understand that forgetting and speaking anew is important in the project of liberation. Mm. So it's complex. It's complex. No, it is. I mean, you were just you just made me think too that the other the other way that the way of metaphor is relevant is that it's so easy for the incremental progress that women have made to be taken away from them. It's so easy to be dragged back in time yeah. on the undercurrents of patriarchy. And yes. just thinking about the American example, looking at the overturning of Roe v. Wade, for instance, yes. has sent yes. many women thinking, has sent many women back yeah. to... Yeah the period between 68 and 73 to understand both what is different now and what forms of organization have been built since then. That means that this is not the same as it was then, but also to look for what is similar between the past and the present and to understand how to reconstitute, how to think about allyship anew, how to think about yes. organizing anew. So it's, yes. it's interesting to me, these, these events that seem to be these almost ruptures in the space-time yeah. of feminism, or yeah. that show you that the narrative of progress is in, in some ways incorrect or can be quite incorrect. Yes. What, what do you think? I mean, are we, when you look at what we are reading in the anthology from 1589 to 2023, do you feel like there is a story of progress that is being told, or is that also a much more complicated narrative that you're giving us? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I mean, no, clearly um, it's problematic to think about progress. It's, I mean, in part because it's always, you know, we have to remember to ask progress for who. Like it might be very good for some middle-class white women, but it's definitely not good for um, a lot of other women. Um, 
And it is amazing. I mean, that is what is, I mean, it's been, it has been a kind of shock, I think, these past few years, exactly with Roe v. Wade, um, with kind of reflecting on the treatment of women and the politics of violence and the kind of obfuscation of care and the taking for granted of female labour and all of that that happened in the pandemic. There's all sorts of ways in which it suddenly felt like... um, you know, we're, we're, we're exactly, there's this kind of rupture. We're out of time, as you say, and we're kind of back there. And I think about, there's a historian called Judith Bennett who has a brilliant phrase called the patriarchal equilibrium, which is this process whereby patriarchy reestablishes itself. So I think progress is obviously, any kind of teleology is a deeply problematic um, framework. Um, and I also think that related to that, um, you know, it helps to think kind of with Toni Morrison or um, or Angela Davis in, in intergenerational terms. Um, you know, I mean, there's, there's a, um, a poet, a, a UK poet writing now, a wonderful poet called Selena Godden, um, and she's just got this new book out, which is called Pessimism is for Wimps or something. And, you know, it's not okay to say, oh God, we're back here again, and put up our hands in, in kind of despair. It's a long fight. It's an intergenerational fight. And just to kind of know that, to know that things don't go in a line, but they maybe go in cycles. And also that um, with each reassertion of power comes a backlash. And, you know, in a way, when things feel like they're most ruptured, that actually might also be the moment of most opportunity. Um, I think that, um, but I think that notion of kind of intergenerationality um, is really important and and you know we can't expect it all to be as it were done in our lifetimes you know you you note interestingly in your introduction that it was your choice not to include any biographical information about the women that you included in the anthology yes and you write in the introduction that it is simply too tempting for people to either reduce women to their biographies, oh, they write about this because they lived it, or to infantilize or domesticate what women are writing about. Oh, they're just writing about childcare or about housework or whatever. At the same time, you could imagine someone reading it with that old kind of chestnut under their arm, the personal is political, and, and wondering why you would not foreground the personal, why you wouldn't take that risk of the authors in here being misread, as it were. Could you talk a little bit about that decision and whether if you were asked to do this again, you would make the you would make the same decision? Yes, 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 I would make the same decision. I mean, I had to think about it again when I came to to do the paperback. Um, Yeah, so so, you know, Penguin Classics, I mean, they generally have um, little biographies of of the people of the authors and i mean my so my thought was that um that men so easily are positioned as philosophers as presenters of ideas and women writing are so easily so often reduced to the circumstances of their lives that it that a woman has to work so hard to be heard as it were 
for the for the ideas that she's espousing. So if I think, you know, in the 18th century, think about Mary Wollstonecraft and um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, you know, both engaged in a very comparable project, thinking about freedom and equality under tyranny. Um, and Rousseau is, you know, this canonical great philosopher, and Wollstonecraft is often talked about in relation to the tragedy of her life, you know, and um, the fact that she, you know, threw herself off Putney Bridge with a broken heart and um, died in, you know, out outrageously sad circumstances having given birth to her amazing daughter Mary Shelley so and and so the thing is I should say that when I was originally uh, writing you know doing framing the um, anthology I did try actually I did try to write autobiographies because Penguin wanted them and I mean they were very good in terms of giving me freedom but you know that was the default position and I said at the beginning I wanted them to be quite sparse and I wanted to think very carefully exactly about how I kind of framed them but nonetheless I would frame them I thought I could frame them in a way that wouldn't as it were reduce the women to their lives and that would let them speak from the great clear air of the mountaintop of philosophy or whatever um that men can inhabit. And I just, every time I tried, I just felt the gravity of the earth pulling me down again. You know, even I was thinking about Virginia Woolf, you know, and, um, you know, her death by suicide. And I thought, I, I mean, in the end, I said that she died in the River Ouse, but I, did, I just, I felt like it's a, A, I exactly wanted to resist the, I wanted to let these women speak for themselves. I didn't want to have that, that pull of gravity. Um, but I also I did I do kind of feel like I mean I don't know maybe this just I'm, I'm quite I find it's a sort of it's a kind of mad exercise to try to summarise a life as well like what you choose to say feels like a, it can sometimes to me feel like a violation and the thing is you know some people do it brilliantly mm. you do it brilliantly you do it brilliantly when you're talking about Virginia Woolf oh thank you um, and but you know I couldn't work out a way of doing it that didn't feel in some sense, A, like a slight violation and B, like it was bringing them down and I wanted to let them speak. Even if exactly as you say, the content of their um, words was about the personal. I mean, the, exactly, the personal is political, that key kind of second wave insight that, you know, what happens behind closed doors, that what happens in the kitchen is just as shaped by relations of power as, you know, what happens in the public sphere. And we have to understand that it's the operation of politics within the personal domain. And that's what, um, that's, that's what feminists are saying. And also, of course, they're saying that, you know, things that feel like personal problems, when you feel like you're cracking up, when you feel like you want to blow your brains out, that's not necessarily a function of your own personal problems. That might be a function of, you know, structural um, injustice. So, but the, the point is, I wanted them to say that for themselves, rather than, um, you know, have to have them mediated through the filter of their biography. I suppose Thinking of the way that you framed your answer to that question, you wanted the women to speak for themselves. I'm curious, who did you want them to speak to? When I think about when I think about an anthology, I often think of it having a pretty explicit classroom function. Yeah. If I were teaching a class on the history of feminism, I would probably assign the Penguin Book of Feminist Writing so that I could provide students with a wide-ranging overview. And then if there were particular authors whose work I wanted to delve in 
uh, with a little more, if I wanted to spend a little bit more time, say on any particular author, I would assign their text. So who did you imagine this book speaking to you? And, And maybe a different way of framing the question might be, what do you think it is that a younger generation of feminists today, let's say millennial feminists, Gen Z feminists, Zoomer feminists, I guess my kids are alpha, <laughs> are alpha feminists. Uh, what, what do these generations need to hear from 600 years ago or five years ago? Yeah. Some respect. <laughs> Listen, kids. Listen. Listen up, youngins. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I think, you know, I mean, in part it is exactly to say, look, this is not just your fight. This has been going on for a long time. And it is something about, you know, like, you know, I mean, we can all do, I mean, this sort of, you know, respect for our foremothers. I mean, I do think that... um, I do think that the idea of of their that there is this um, that there is this incredible past struggle and and um, kind of communicating that exactly um, to younger readers is really important. But um, I mean, I I mean, obviously, I teach um, in at Kings. I teach in the university, and I did definitely want um, an anthology that would speak to students and would speak to the general reader and would kind of sort of decenter exactly the kind of the manifesto form in a way um and the form in which a woman thinking might express herself so to think about genre to think about novels and poetry as just as as kind of integral to political um action um so you know so it's partly about it was partly about kind of rethinking the genre of of political writing in a way um and also as i've said that 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 it should be a pleasure to read so it didn't just sort of knock you over the head i mean if you wanted so so one of the you know when i was talking about the principles of um inclusion obviously i wanted it to be um kind of expansive. I wanted to de- I wanted to um, rethink and expand and explode the canon, but I also wanted it to be a pleasure. And I was thinking um, before um, this conversation, I was thinking, God, I've got two pieces by Denise Riley in there. Um, and in part, that's because at the moment when I was kind of deciding, I loved Denise Riley so much and I just couldn't decide between the two, but I could maybe read that tiny poem of hers um, in 1970. It's just four lines, which just kind of evokes the... Um, like some of the pleasure, like some of the the, the, the kind of the, the feeling of the anthology. So Denise Riley, her poem in 1970. The eyes of the girls are awash with violets. Pansies are flowering under their tongues. They are grouped by the edge of the waves and are anxious to swim. Each one is on fire with passion to achieve herself. I love that too. I love, no, I love that. I love that too. And, and it's, um, you know, it, it takes me back to something you said earlier and something you write about in the introduction, which is that there is a danger to the fact that the feminist project is a negative one, that it must necessarily turn on pointing out one's oppression, but that the 
practice or the language or the style in which one points out one's oppression can also be this unbelievably lush and sensual language that we're getting from 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 Riley here, awash with violets, pansies flowering under their tongues. It can be a bodily language. It can be one that we want to take into our mouths, as it were. And yeah. that that's what saves the project, right? That's what that's what saves it from the yeah. the bind that you yeah. are pointing out is this is where the joy is, yeah. this is where the pleasure is. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's exactly right, Merve. And and also and thinking about sisterhood as well, thinking about solidarity, because going back to the question about, you know, what you get from, as it were, this kind of chain of, of people sort of holding hands. I mean, sometimes being terrible to each other, but there's a lot of holding hands as well here in a good way. And 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 they're kind of chained through time. And and thinking about exactly that the um the amazing kind of generative um scope of political struggle, the scope for kind of horizontal connection when you're um, fighting against injustice. But also, as you were talking, I was thinking about, um, you know, a, a lot of what, for example, early modern feminists were trying to do was kind of prove that they had reason. They were trying to construct themselves as rational, authoritative um, beings, um, not these emotional um, creatures who needed the governance of a man to uh, keep them uh, on the path of virtue. And what um, feminist writing often does, and of course this is where um, Sarah Ahmed and Audre Lorde are so uh, powerful, is that they they kind of decenter reason, or at least they, um, or as well as thinking about reason, they make a, a thinking about affect and emotion as integral to understanding political theorizing. So, you know, as Ahmed says, um, you know, in a way, like what a feminist is, a definition of a feminist is a killjoy because you're calling out the status quo, you're calling out patriarchy and that makes people feel bad. You know, you're killing joy. But of course, exactly, um, she's also interested in finding joy at the alternative tables that we can construct as feminists. Mm. I am going to turn us to the Q&A now with about 15 minutes left in our conversation. And if it is all right with our organizers, I am going to ask questions in order of how provocative I find them to be. And I hope that's okay with you. So this one is from Ruth, who asks, can a man ever truly be a feminist? <laughs> I think so, Ruth. I mean, as I said at the beginning, I think of feminism as a political position. Um, it's the belief that um, women are oppressed, um, that sexism exists in the world, and it's uh, the resistance against that. And um, so I think men, not only men can be feminists, men can hold that position, but they, they should hold that position. Everyone should hold that position. I mean, what's, what's, what's not to like about the position that stands up against injustice? So, yeah, so I, I think it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a political view, feminism, just like Marxism or socialism or liberalism. And um, anyone can hold that view. You are being asked to weigh in on the great Barbie controversy of summer 2023. Oh. Is Barbie a feminist icon? Yay or nay? <laughs> from, oh from, from, from Marie, from Marie, from Marie. Marie. 
Um, let me think back. I mean, I did think it was a really interesting film. Um, Don't spoil anything for me. I haven't seen it. No. Oh, have you not seen no, it? No, I haven't seen it. <laughs> no, you, um, you can spoil it. I'm probably not. I'm, she's I'm, not. I'm no, not no, it. I'm not going to spoil it. No, no. I mean, I don't. I mean, um, I don't think she's kind of a, a straightforwardly feminist icon in other in many ways. And there are lots of kind of. I mean, God, I'm just trying to remember what I even thought about that film. Um, it does talk almost like it's kind of in a way it's like a series of mini lectures that identifies what patriarchy is. So there's that kind of speech um, kind of midway through where the the kind of, you know, one of the kind of creators of Barbie, not Barbie herself, but the creators of Barbie, she talks about what patriarchy is, you know, she and she talks about all the kind of infinite double binds in which women find themselves. You know, you can't be too... You can't, you know, all, all the te- all the sort of impossibilities of being a woman, and that struck me, you know, as, as a sort of reasonable analysis of of of, of part of of part of the struggle. Um, but you know, it's um, it's predicated. I mean, the main problem for me was that it was predicated on a very strict binary between men and women. Um, as though such a thing exists, and um, and I think that's deeply problematic. Um, you know, I don't think that there is kind of one thing that we can point to that a woman is, and one thing that we can point to that a man is. And so the kind of yeah, the binary nature of the way that the, the kind of patriarchy is constructed, I think, is is deeply, deeply problematic. Bella asks you if, in the past, as you say, women were reduced to the lives they lived by including them in the anthology as feminist writers, isn't this just further entrenching them as feminist writers rather than writers with universal insights like Nietzsche and Hobbes? So, um, so I totally take the point that, um, you know, Mary Wollstonecraft was making absolutely um, kind of universalizable claims about what freedom means, you know. So when she was talking about freedom being... Uh, a relation of dependency on another's will. She's making there a universalizable philosophical point about freedom that you can apply to many different contexts, not just to gender relations. Um, but obviously, I was asked to write the pen- to or- organize the Penguin Book of Feminist Writing, so so that's that was the principle on which they went in. And obviously, um, yeah. So 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 it's a fem- it's a book on feminist writing. So that's why. That's why the feminist right. That's why it's okay to kind of you know understand them as feminist writing. Otherwise, there would just be no book. Well, right. I mean, Alfred, people don't tend to ask when they encounter an anthology of nineteenth-century philosophy. Isn't this you know tokenizing, or isn't this isn't this yeah. limiting Nietzsche to be a yeah. you know nineteenth-century philosopher? Yeah. So it's interesting how. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just also yeah. maybe pair that with your earlier observation. I, your earlier answer to Ruth about how, of course, men can and should be feminist, but, you know, there there is nothing uh, essentializing or nothing that is cordoning off these women from larger questions about universal freedom or human suffering if you understand feminism as a shared political project among everyone. It's not just not yes. just for women. So I. Yes. And of course, it's interesting thinking about Wolf's ambivalence there about the feminist project and what she said about, you know, 
I mean, she she was wary. She wanted to destroy the word feminism precisely because she wanted to think about men and women in a shared endeavour for liberation. I mean, obviously, she had lots of funny things in relation to class. And I mean, there's lots of there's lots of things we want to. But I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a, the point is about a shared endeavour. Right. Right. Yeah. What are your views on body positivity? How do we reconcile the contradictions between self-acceptance and the pressures women face to conform to traditional beauty standards? I think this might also link back to the Barbie question in a way. I'm very pro-body positivity. I mean, the thing is, if that just means like not feeling shame, not um, about what one is, I think that you know, as much as possible that we can kind of liberate ourselves from norms about that feel oppressive about what we should look like um, and that we feel bad to the extent that we don't conform to them. I think, you know, yeah, the more that we can kind of shake that off, the better. I mean, I also, you know, I think it's interesting to think about the intersection between kind of patriarchy and capitalism and the beauty industry and the way that, you know, that we're being sold a lot of, that this is, it's not just, as it were, about um, putting women in their place. It's also about making money. And, and Nawal al-Sadawi, for example, is very, very interesting um, on giving a critique of, of the intersection between patriarchy and, and capitalism in this regard in relation particularly to the beauty industry in the West. And obviously that's just very important in terms of kind of thinking globally about feminism and thinking that, you know, when sort of Western feminists want to kind of sit on their laurels and think that it's all terrible over there, that there are all sorts of ways in which we're being, con- that, you know, women are being controlled in the West as well in terms of what they wear, what they want to look like. You know, it's very interesting that women end up looking very similar. I mean, that can't be that can't be a function of freedom. You know, I, I was I was thinking because I'm, I'm, we've talked about this, Hannah, but I edited edited and introduced a collection of Sontag's essays called "On Women," and she has two, I think, three very yes. very interesting essays on beauty in that collection. And one of the things that she observes, or one of the things that she suggests is that what women need are new aesthetic categories that actually allow for the critique of capitalist patriarchy to take place in a playful and joyful way. And of course, for Sontag, the kind of poor category is camp. Yes. But but it is it is interesting looking at people's development of other kinds of categories that are that sit orthogonal to beauty. And actually, I think this feeds into our next question, uh, which Francis asks, which is some contemporary feminist writers are looking back at the naughties with a detached horror at raunch feminism. What are your feelings about that? I mean, I'm very relaxed, I think. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what raunch feminism is, but I'm very relaxed about, um, like, being raunchy. I, don't, <laughs> I mean... Um, I think that it it goes. I mean, obviously, it's it's a complicated question, you know. So, I obviously I believe in in liberation. That liberation is key to the feminist project. That's to say, trying as far as one can to kind of um, to sort of, as it were, look into oneself and um, you know let your freak frag fly or whatever it is. Um, but I am also aware, of course, that um, sometimes those kind of 
you know, that experience of sexual liberation has historically been, in fact, one which has reinforced certain um, kind of stereotypes and certain power relations. You know, we all know about the kind of permissive sexual revolution of the 60s and how actually that often just kind of reasserted um, the the submission of women to male sexual desire. And so I think it's I think it's complicated um, but I am, but there's no way that I'm kind of going to begin a discussion by going round and saying, you know, you know, put your top on or don't, you know, get off that pole that you're dancing around. You know, I'm definitely not beginning there. But I, but I, I understand that um, that sometimes um, projects that, as it were, go under the banner of feminist projects can, in a way, be uh, just a kind of further means of entrenching patriarchy. You know, maybe I will go ahead and ask the last question, Hannah, which is which is that, you know, reading through the Penguin Book of Feminist Writing, reading and really understanding 600 years of theory, one sees feminism approached from almost every possible angle. I felt the same way reading the feminist manifestos for the revolution. There is yeah. every possible kind of manifesto yeah. that one could imagine. There is every possible kind of articulation of what level of analysis the feminist project should take place and what that analysis, what kind of political action that analysis should engender. So I would ask of you the same question that Bruno Latour asks of all of us, which is, has feminism, he says, has critique, but has feminism run out of steam? Intellectually, where is there left to go with the theorization of feminism? And is theory useful anymore for crafts? And if so, how? That's a lot of questions, but I feel like because it's yeah. the last one, we can, yeah. you can, you can go, You're allowed. I'm allowed <laughs> and you can go out big. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, I think my first thought in response to your rich question is is to, to think about what it's like in the classroom when I teach the history of feminism. So I teach a kind of final year special subject in the history of feminism to undergraduates. And, you know, it's a cliche, but every time we go on a journey... And every time the students say, I am so glad that I now have the words to articulate why it is that I feel bad in certain situations, how I can come back against, you know, harassment or someone telling me to calm down or smile more or eat less or eat more, that it is essential in life and in political relations, which is life, um, for us to have the language and the concepts to, as it were, to know ourselves and to know and to be able to name the relations between ourselves and others. And I think that, I think that that is what feminism gives us. Um, it gives us an amazingly rich language to decode, as it were, those sometimes kind of inchoate, vulnerable feelings that we don't quite have the words for necessarily. 
And we can be like, oh, I know why I feel bad. I feel bad because I'm calling out injustice. I feel bad because I'm killing your joy. I'm bringing you down. And actually knowing that kind of, you know, that there's some, that there'll be some negative affect swirling as a function of calling out injustice is amazingly freeing as it is in a sort of, you know, I mean, this is taking us into sort of therapeutic um, territory, but, you know, being able to name the feeling and understand the feeling is so healing and so empowering. Mm. And, and that, I think that is what feminism gives us. Well, let us end on that therapeutic note. Hannah, thank you so much. Thank you to our audience and thank you to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Leila Ishmael and edited by Tom Hall. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com get the heads up on all our live events coming up and members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.